Hey everyone, Eric here. Very quickly before we get to our discussion today with Paul Nantulia, I just want to give you a quick heads up that we've made it even easier to try out the China Africa email newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day. It's something that we're super proud of and we'd love for you to give it a try. $3 for three months and you'll get the newsletter delivered every day plus full access to all of the exclusive analysis on the CAP website. If you're following Chinese foreign policy, the Belt and Road, African politics, Chinese tech, and so much more along those lines, well, this newsletter is perfect for you. Sign up today at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's just $3 for three months at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Syndica Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're going to pick up the theme of the past few weeks of our podcast where we're trying to understand the moment that we're in. So earlier this week, we had a discussion with Alonzo Soto from Bloomberg about debt relief and where we are now. Today, we're going to be talking about soft power. And this has been one of the themes of our podcast dating back years now about the Chinese presence in Africa in terms of how it's communicating its ideals, how it's persuading people to do things. And really in this day and age now of the U.S.-China standoff, uh, the idea of soft power is even more important as there is a competition of ideas that's still out there. One area in particular that I've been writing a lot about right, lately is in Nigeria. And Nigeria in so many ways represents an interesting case study for what's happening in other parts of the continent. Let me take you back to a few of the bullet points from earlier this year. So a lot of things started to happen in April, if you'll recall, about mid-April, around April 12th, April 13th, when those images started to appear on Facebook and Twitter and WhatsApp of uh, Nigerians and other black residents in Guangzhou who were being discriminated against uh, for any number of different reasons, but it really set off a firestorm. Then that was followed up a few weeks later by a fiasco that was surrounding Chinese doctors that were being sent to Nigeria uh, at that point by CCECC, which is the big state-owned engineering and construction company. The Nigerian medical community passionately objected to that, and really it caused a three- to four-week furor, followed by Benjamin Kalu, a representative in the Nigerian House of Representatives in the National Assembly. He then called for every Chinese national to have their immigration papers and every Chinese business in Nigeria to be checked, he said that in response to what happened in Guangzhou, two weeks later, one of his colleagues, another opposition politician, Representative Ben Igbakpa, also in the House of Representatives, called for an audit of the past 20 years of Chinese loans in Nigeria. Now, at the same time that all of this was happening in Abuja, uh, these joint task force across the country in Nigeria started deploying uh, heavily armed troops or security forces out to start cracking down on illegal mining. And throughout all of this, particularly in Osun State and some of these others, 
there were dozens of Chinese who were arrested and nabbed and picked up in all of this. There have also been a number of high-profile allegations of Chinese factories in Nigeria abusing their local workers. And now for the past three weeks, the country's been embroiled in just a spectacular controversy over Chinese loans that just won't go away. Now, what makes this interesting is that we've basically had a steady stream of bad news going back all the way to April, uninterrupted. And from the beginning, we have barely heard a peep from the Chinese embassy or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing. Nothing. I mean, from time to time, they'll put a tweet out or they'll put a statement out. But there is no messaging that's going to countervail any of these events that have happened over the past few months. So in this vacuum, all of this negative media coverage appears to be having a rather significant impact on civil society perceptions of China that are becoming increasingly and decidedly negative. So, Kobus, this has got me thinking a lot about Chinese soft power. And when we talk about soft power, we usually think of CGTN, the TV network, Xinhua, the news agency, uh, Star Times, and things like that. But it feels like we're not necessarily reading it the same way based on what we've seen in Nigeria. What do you think? With soft power, the you know soft power is a, is a notoriously slippery concept, um, and it 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 plays in a in a in a few different kind of spaces at once. One of them is at the very high level, you know. So so obviously, soft power is frequently seen, or I think Joseph Joseph Nye classically coined it as as essentially getting other people to do what you want them to do without threatening them or or making them do it, you know, through military or economic pressure. Like essentially getting people on the same page as you, so that they then do, you know, do work with you in you know kind of in in the wider world. Um, and you know, at the very high level, I think Chinese soft power seems pretty healthy in Africa. You know, as as we've seen, you know, African states up, you know, tend to vote with China in the UN, even on issues that. You know that that would seem to be against their their specific interests, like for example, Islamic, you know, African countries voting with China or, or supporting China on issues like Xinjiang. Um, so their their soft power seems to be working okay, but it's it's there's a different kind of soft power which is a kind of a wider kind of popular perception of your country and like whether the country your country has values. Um, that that fit in with the thinking of of the local population, and there we're seeing a lot of a lot of these kind of like negative ideas about China, um, and the question then becomes how how and whether that really affects Chinese soft power on the continent. Okay, well, you've brought up two interesting points here. Let's first start with uh, Joseph Nye himself. I think for the purposes of our discussion on soft power today, it's really important for us to have a benchmark. And you referenced Joseph Nye. Uh, he, he, in, he introduced the concept dating back to the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, he's a Harvard professor, and he wrote a book uh, called Bound to Lead, The Changing Nature of American Power. And at that time, he introduced the concept of soft power. Let's listen to his definition of it, and then we'll come back to, I want to challenge one of the, the comments that you made, Kobus. Well, power is the ability to get what you want from others, and you can do it three ways. You can do it with coercion, you can do it with payment, or you can do it with attraction and persuasion. Coercion and payment I call hard power. The ability to get what you want through attraction and persuasion is soft power. Well, probably the greatest example would be the Cold War. Uh, when the Berlin Wall went down, it did not go down under artillery barrage of hard power. It went down under people 
wielding hammers and bulldozers. In other words, their minds have been changed. They've been attracted and persuaded. And that's an example of soft power. And that was created by culture, values, ideas. People on the eastern side had lost their faith in communism. And they basically were uh, changed, or those views were changed through attraction and persuasion. And that's a good example of soft power as you could want. Coercion versus attraction and persuasion. And Kobus, I just wanted to pick up on what you said about the UN votes, for example, from African countries. And I, I'm wondering if those are done by coercion or persuasion. That is, they're voting because they're, the risk of not supporting China could launch countermeasures or could there could be consequences to it. So that might not actually be an effect of soft power, but actual hard power in the Joseph Knight definition. It might well be, and but this is this is one of the problems with the concept of soft power itself, because because you know there, there there's a there's a kind of a fuzzy space there in between actual coercion and 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 attraction in the sense that many ruling elites uh, feel themselves on the same page with other ruling elites. So there you know there it, it it's possible to to have your to to have a, a, a a sympathetic ear for your point as a, as a kind of a, a powerful state like China um, from African ruling elites without having to coerce them, without having to kind of to threaten you know to like trade impacts. And the thing the thing of course is we don't know what what the discussion was in in this case. But uh, you know kind of it, it's you know attraction of a, of a small ruling elite and attraction of of a large public those those are two different things and but they kind of both fit into the soft power concept which is one of the reasons why the soft power concept is frequently seen as problematic it's it's kind of too elastic in, in lots of cases let's get some arbitration on this and we really could not have a better expert on this paul nantulia is a research associate at the africa center for strategic studies in washington dc uh, he has an extensive background in african security issues both as a scholar and as an active participant on the ground in a number of of post-conflict environments. Uh, he's got too long of a profile for me to read, but there are a couple points that I did want to bring out. Uh, he was a regional technical advisor on, the South on South Sudan for Catholic Relief Services, and he was also part of the Accord team that worked directly with President Nelson Mandela in South Africa on the Arusha peace process in Burundi. Uh, Paul, it is a true honor to have you on the show for the first time. Long overdue, and a very good morning to you from Washington, D.C. No, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Eric. I'm glad to be here. So you heard a little bit of the debate that Kobus and I are having about the moment that we're in right now vis-a-vis -vis Chinese soft power in Africa. We're going to get into some of the more technical definitions and the details of it later in our discussion. You've given us a lot of good talking points to pursue. But I'd like to start our discussion a little bit of help me figure out this confusion that I have about where we are, not just in Nigeria, but in Africa as a whole in terms of China's effectiveness in soft power and where we are in the moment. Yes, no, thanks. Um, no, as Kobe said, uh, it's a very elastic concept. And so it's very difficult because, uh, you know, with soft power, you're really dealing with intangible factors that are very, very difficult to measure. Uh, and if you um, venture into measuring the effectiveness of soft power, or the lack of effectiveness of soft power, you're, you're going to have to look at it from a long-term perspective uh, because it essentially involves attitudes. Corbus was talking about uh, attraction. He was talking about appeal. And uh, this is extremely interesting because if you look at the Chinese theory of soft power, uh, which uh, goes, back, goes way back uh, to the dynastic era, 
these are the three terms uh, that are used frequently uh, you know, by Confucian scholars and others uh, who were advising the, uh, the emperors at the time. Uh, you know, they were basically talking about attraction or attraction capacity. They were talking about appealing power. And they were talking about cultural power. Now, these are Chinese uh, concepts. And they are built around the idea that China uh, had always had something special uh, and something different and something unique uh, to offer the world, uh, to offer the world around it uh, in terms of the um, superiority of its culture, the superiority of its um, governance models and its way of life. And this is a long-standing Chinese tradition. And sort of if you look at what has happened in the contemporary era, the Chinese Communist Party has um, pretty much embraced uh, the idea of soft power. In fact, uh, a lot of scholars uh, will argue that uh, the Chinese are the best students of Joseph Nye uh, because they really uh, poured into his uh, theory, uh, into his theories of soft power, particularly bound to lead, which was translated and critiqued by the Chinese military, specifically by the People's Liberation Army uh, military, military press that unpacked his concept, critiqued it, and then developed uh, a response to it. And we see that response uh, being highly instrumentalized in the policy process. So pretty much every uh, national congress uh, that the Communist Party has held from the Hu Jintao era up to the Xi Jinping era has had a session, uh, have, has had sessions on soft power. And um, uh, so, the poli the, so the idea has been, has been unpacked, it has been embraced by the Chinese leadership. And uh, it's very interesting because if you look at the lineup of the Politburo uh, Standing Committee, which is the highest decision-making body in China, you've got two soft power theorists in there. Uh, so that just comes to show um, the political uh, relevance uh, of soft power in terms of how the Chinese uh, believe uh, their country should be engaging, especially the developing world and the countries of Africa. Do you, do you have a kind of a clear idea of how of how the concept has, has evolved over you know from the Hu Jintao era to the Xi Jinping era, and what what role um, you know initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative is playing in it now? Yes, I mean the Belt and Road is definitely. I mean, if you look at how it's being reported, uh, you know these terms again: attraction, appeal. Uh, are, are very much are very much used um, in, in in Belt and Road communications. Uh, in uh, if you uh, go back to the uh, second Belt and Road Forum that was held last year, and uh, you look at uh, Xi Jinping's uh, speech, and you look at the speeches that you know that um, you know that were made by uh, different officials uh, in China, including um, including Wang Yi and uh, Yang Jishe, uh, the who was then the architect, uh, essentially the foreign policy chief. It's been framed as a soft power uh, concept, as a soft power tool, uh, as a soft power export. And uh, I think there is a calculative and instrumentalist uh, approach there because, um, you know, the Belt and Road has received a lot of uh, pushback, uh, particularly uh, over issues of debt, over issues of, uh, of security, as well as the use of uh, Chinese uh, security contractors to secure some of these um, state-owned enterprises. And that has, and that has come with its, with its problems. So uh, the government has really doubled down on this, on this concept and really tried to, um, to convey uh, a series of narratives. You know, China is uh, not going to uh, 
throw its weight around. Uh, China is not uh, going to behave, quote-unquote, like the hegemonists do. China is going to uh, try and uh, uh, stay true to its, uh, to its uh, position and its image as a true friend of the African continent, uh, which contributed to the liberation of uh, quite a number of African countries and so on and so forth. So these are strategic narratives that we see being conveyed at different levels of the Chinese uh, government. So, you know, the one way to look at it is uh, altruistic. Uh, However, uh, you know, there's a very, very calculative and very instrumentalist approach in the sense that, uh, you know, the Chinese government uh, wants to do everything that it possibly can to downplay the strategic, the geostrategic and the hard military elements of its engagements on the African continent. So that's really where the soft power debate comes in. Um, and the other thing that I would say is that um, I tend to disagree with the notion that uh, that um, that the Chinese, uh, you know, uh, authorities, because I think we need to distinguish between the Chinese authorities and the Chinese people here, uh, that the Chinese authorities were, were, were excellent students of Joseph Nye. Because if you look at the, uh, the translation that I was talking about, um, you know, the translation of Joseph Nye's work, in China, it's actually titled, Will America Be Able to Lead the World Once and for All? And the conclusion that it made was that um, Joseph Nye had developed a theory uh, that could be used as a strategic weapon by the Americans and the West in general uh, to subvert China and overthrow its ruling party. Um, And I think that is the message they took away from Bound to Lead. And so when they developed their theory of soft power, which of course they tried to ground in uh, Chinese history, it was really developed as a critique, as a criticism uh, of, of Joseph of Joseph Nye's work, and so obviously, um, you know, that meant that uh, they had to uh, do everything that they could within their own thinking uh, to try and uh, prevent the infiltration, the so-called infiltration of Western values uh, into China. So there's a very combative very political and very strategic uh, approach um uh you know that you know that they have taken i i am not one of those that believes uh you know that that you know the chinese government was a good student of joseph nye uh they 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 they, they developed a, a a theory that counters uh, uh what, what what you know what he put forth in bound to lead now it seems that there are two tracks that we should look at and this is something that cobus and i have been writing quite a bit about over the past six months in our newsletter, is that on the one hand, there's the governing elites. And and you notice this when you just look, for example, last Sunday, CGTN did this China-Africa show uh, where they invited ambassadors and various stakeholders. And when yes. you hear the rhetoric from these ambassadors and these officials, they, they're, they're retelling everything that you've just documented out to us, everything about the strategic narrative, all the things about how China-Africa cooperation is so beneficial. It is, there is no daylight between the Chinese position and these governing elites. And it's the same on the continent where we have, despite all of what we've seen in 2020, from Guangzhou all the way up to the loan issue through today and COVID-19, not a single president or prime minister has said anything critical of China. And that is a testament, and really, the Chinese, I think, deserve credit for managing the soft power relationship with those governing elites. Now, is that coercive power or soft power? Okay, that's up for debate and dispute. Where there is no dispute is on the civil society side, particularly in democracies in Africa. I'm thinking mostly of South Africa, Kenya, Botswana, 
and Nigeria in particular, where uh, public opinion is decidedly negative and getting worse, it seems like, uh, not just because of Guangzhou, but also because of the debt and also because of uh, the way that the Chinese engage in Africa, which is a very top-down way, because when Guangzhou happened, the Chinese government apologized to the African Union, to ambassadors and to foreign ministers, but never issued a public apology to people, to civil society. So I'm wondering when you look at soft power in Africa or elsewhere around the world, what the Chinese are doing, do you also see those two tracks or is it something different? Actually, I, I, I agree with what, you're, with what you're saying. And uh, sort of uh, I was speaking uh, to a to a um, conference on this subject um, towards the end of last year and just, uh, you know, recently completed a study on it. And one of the things that I found is, um, so one, the, um, the heart of, the, of, of, of Chinese engagement is essentially govern, governing elites uh, with which uh, relationship building is extremely important. Um, uh, intergenerational contact with um, leaderships, both in terms of uh, political party leadership, as well as uh, business elites that are connected to the governing parties, uh, and military elites. So it's very, very state-driven. It's very, it's very top-down. Um, so that is, so that is the one element, and I think that's one of the challenges uh, of of, uh, of uh, Chinese soft power, uh, in the sense that it's it's very top-down. Now, having said that, the uh, uh, Chinese government has tried to um, it has broadened its engagement uh, over the years. So you know, for instance, we see um, the uh, you know the scholarships, uh, we see the the local government training, we see the media training, uh, we see the civil society, and even and even the legal the legal side uh, where there's a lot of contact between uh, the law commissions uh, in China as well as uh, law. Um, uh, bodies uh, on the African continent. So sort of broadening that. But if you really interrogate those very, very carefully, uh, they're still very much um, within the uh, local regulations in terms of uh, uh, who benefits from these opportunities, uh, who has the, who has the, um, the uh, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know the people that actually travel to China. Uh, you know for all these trainings, they, they, you know there is a still a very state-to-state -state, um, uh, approach. So I think that's one of the problems. Uh, the other problem is um, is uh, perception. So at the beginning at the beginning of the of the of the show, you were talking about uh, some of the issues in Nigeria, and I you know can also talk about um, a similar similar situations in Ghana. Uh, we've seen that in uh, in Zambia. We've seen it in Zimbabwe with uh, state-owned uh, state-owned enterprises and other and other countries as well. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with uh, you know the private sector. You know, private sectors feeling edged out uh, and feeling um, uh, passed over in terms of uh, in terms of the uh, the contracts that are that are you know construction contracts, uh, contracts in uh, power engineering and all that. Uh, private sectors are feeling are feeling are feeling left out, particularly with regard to uh, Belt and Road uh, projects. Uh, then the other element has to do with uh, with um, with uh, how African uh, uh, um, communities view China. Now, China is increasingly is increasingly being seen as a superpower in its own right, right? And so um, that immediately challenges the thesis. Uh, that you know, China is a fellow developing country that is sensitive to the needs of African countries, having been underdeveloped itself, having been colonized uh, to some extent, 
uh, you know, there's that uh, uh, common understanding that China tries to build. But I think it's being uh, blunted uh, by the reality of, uh, of the growth of, of Chinese power. And I think this is one of the major, one of the major challenges uh, that, uh, uh, that China faces, uh, you know, as it tries to, um, uh, to build the kind of image uh, that, it is, that, it, you know, that it has built on the continent since, since at least the, 19, the 1960s. Yeah, you know, kind of going on from the, from that um, from that line that that point, um, you know, as as you say, China makes much makes much of um, of its kind of global south status in certain cases, um, and this idea of kind of south south um, solidarity. Um, do, you know, kind of do, do you see that? I guess you know, kind of just just going on from from your answer, like how much legs do you think that narrative still has in them? And like you know, like is it possible for China in twenty years, for example, to still claim some form of South South solidarity, or will it have to be replaced by something else? Well, I think I think that's a debate that is uh, that is definitely taking place on the African continent, uh, but it's also taking place in China itself because uh, I mean, there's by no means a monolith a monolithic approach. Uh, you've got different schools uh, of thought within the soft power debate in China itself, you know, that you see uh, in the in in academia, that you see in uh, in think tanks, uh, as well as as well as uh, universities. Uh, you know, there's a there's a there's a diversity of uh, of opinion, and I think one of the one of the one of the major challenges, uh, you know, that you see that you see. Uh, being articulated uh, when you look at the um, the soft power discussions that are taking place in China itself is precisely how should China deal with this with this reality, uh, the reality that uh, to a very large extent um, you cannot call China a developing country in 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 in, in the strict in the strictest uh, sense of the term. I mean, Africans see uh, the wealth, they see the power the power dynamic. They're looking at the strategic competition right now that's taking place between China and the United States. Uh, they look at what's happening in the in the in the South China Sea. I mean, these are things that are being uh, talked about on the African continent, uh, and they're looking at the PLA. They pay a lot of attention to the military reforms that have happened. Uh, they pay a, a, a lot of attention to um, to the growth of uh, of the Chinese military and its increasingly globalized role. So it's something that is. Um, uh, that is, uh, the, you know, that is definitely uh, part of the discussion, and it would be interesting to see uh, what direction the Communist Party takes. I mean, we have FOCA coming up next year. Uh, we have some critical milestones uh, ahead of the next, uh, uh, the next, uh, the next uh, party congress. So we're going to have to see what direction the country takes, uh, because this is becoming an increasingly difficult proposition to sell. Uh, on the African continent. Well, it's it's interesting you talked about the U.S.-China dispute because in many ways Africa has said it wants to stay out of it. But what we're seeing is that Africa in so many ways is now caught in the middle whether it wants to or not, either directly in the form of NASPERS, which is the big digital tech company that owns the largest share of Tencent, and now its share price in the Johannesburg Stock Exchange is fluctuating wildly based on what Donald Trump does to Chinese tech companies, uh, whether it is the, the loan issue and on just the ongoing dispute between the two. So the Chinese are using various tools now in their soft power arsenal, much the same tools that all countries and major powers have to try and push back. So of course there is the state-run media 
Xinhua, China Radio International, CGTN. Those are the obvious and visible tools of state power and soft power. Then they've got these these digital distribution networks of content that are spread uh, throughout African media. So you turn on Ghana Web, and all of a sudden there's Xinhua articles, uh, independent online in South Africa. Same way, they've got a strategic investment and quote-unquote partnership with the Chinese government. Those are, again, traditional tools of soft power. And I would like you to kind of separate, going back into the history that you are so expert in of Chinese kind of the philosophy of soft power, how do the modern tools of soft power that the Chinese don't seem to be very good at, so the use of Twitter they're not very good at, the CGTN, nobody really watches it, let's be honest with it, those tools they're not very good at, but other tools in their arsenal they seem to be very, very good at. And these are the parts that I think in the U.S., in Europe, stakeholders don't seem to understand very well. Because when I meet with U.S. officials uh, at the State Department, Defense Department, anywhere, they have this puzzled look on their faces to why is it that African countries like the Chinese so much and not us? (laughs) They give you these very puzzled looks. Help us understand the differences in the tools that they use to enact their soft power in places like Africa. You know, the, the, more, the, more effective, uh, the more effective tools are precisely the ones that are more subtle and the ones that have grown incrementally over the years. And I think if you look at education uh, and the role that China is playing in uh, international education, uh, I think that's one of the places to start. Because it is very interesting to see that um, when, when, you know, these uh, scholarships, uh, the scholarships that uh, that China offers uh, to different African to different African countries. Uh, if you look at if you look at the uh, composition of the um, you know the beneficiaries of uh, government scholarships, and then you look at the uh, African students that go to China and are self sponsored or go there through private means, uh, I think that tells you something uh, because. Um, the numbers the numbers are growing uh, quite quite significantly uh, when you look at when you look at the students that are there on on self on self sponsorship so that is one of the um, one of the indicators that I think perhaps shows us that uh, some of these soft power initiatives are are, are succeeding the other the other the other uh, uh, dimension is the training now um, you now have a a, a wide body of uh, of programs uh, on offer uh, in China, uh, ranging from the uh, you know the you've got you've got a forum, a China a China Africa journalist forum, uh, you have a China Africa legal legal and law reform uh, uh, forum, uh, you have a China Africa young leaders forum, you have a China Africa youth forum, you have all these different forums uh, that China has in place. Some of them are short term training, uh, uh, others are long term. So, for instance, if you look at the uh, since two thousand fourteen. Uh, they have hosted a, um, a, a an eight month fellowship program uh, for journalists. Uh, um, you know, both uh, st- you know state run state from the state run media and from private media as well. Uh, right. Uh, so you are now beginning to see uh, a shift from sort of the short to medium term uh, programs to the more long term sort of fellowships. Uh, the sort of stuff that uh, was mostly associated with uh, countries like France. Uh, United States, United Kingdom, and Germany. So that is the one element. The other element is in um, 
is the training that takes place on the African continent. So we're increasingly starting to see a lot of the training that was initially on offer in China being moved to the African continent uh, and sort of um, uh, trying to uh, sort of indigenize uh, that training uh, trying to uh, do, uh, you know, sort of like uh, train the trainers uh, initiatives in order to reach a much wider pool of, uh, of, uh, of, of beneficiaries. So I think if we look at the more subtle elements, uh, and then of course you also have the, um, uh, still, you know, looking, looking at the subtle side, you do have uh, soft power initiatives that are, that are, that are, that are not necessarily um, uh, happening at the behest of, uh, of, of the government. So if you look at what's happening in the areas of agriculture, you look at what's happening uh, with um, Chinese students on the African continent, uh, you look at some of the research that's coming out uh, with regard to the people-to-people -people ties um, you know, that are happening um, outside of uh, the state-to-state -state, uh, dimension, I think that's where uh, the soft power, soft power initiatives are much more effective and much more uh, subtle. And I think there's a gray area uh, and there's a really a gap in research in terms of the soft power initiatives that are developing outside uh, state and party direction. And I think that's where we need to be paying some attention to. Copus, it's interesting what Paul is saying because it's echoed a lot of what you've said over the years in terms of China's development story is its most compelling soft power initiative. This idea that in the space of 40 years, China went from being a country that in many cases was poorer than most African countries to the second largest economy in the world. Forget about everything else that royals the China-Africa relationship, that development story alone is very powerful. Do you still think that's relevant today? Yes, I think so. I think it, it, it remains very relevant. Um, and I think it's it's a narrative that that unites the this gap that 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 we've discussed about the between ruling elites and and civil society. I think I think it plays positively in in both. I mean, not not without complications. I think it also, you know, you in, in sometimes. It's interesting for me, and I'd, I'd like to get Paul's take on this as well. But like, it's 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 interesting for me how sometimes in discussion with with Western commentators, um, especially American commentators, they they um, they they assume a, a kind of high level of suspicion of entities like state-owned um, enterprises or you know kind of anything to do with the government. Um, and I think that's different in Africa. You know, kind of Africa. Many African countries, governments, national governments are are big service providers, um, and so so initiatives like like Star Times, um, you know, for example, rolling out uh, cable TV um, or satellite TV then across across large parts of rural Africa, um, and then kind of branding it as a, as a kind of a, a China Nigeria or China Ghana, um, you know, kind of friendship gesture, uh, kind of like bringing bringing it from the corporate identity to the state identity plays well, I think, in, in many parts of Africa. Paul, Paul, do you agree? No, I agree. I agree. Uh, it does. It does. And I think and I think there and I think there are quite a number of uh, commonalities uh, that um, that explain that. Uh, definitely, you know, when a company like uh, Star Times, uh, which is um, private, quote unquote, however, it does have this uh, authorization from the Chinese government to roll this program out as part of as part of FOCAC. Uh, the way it is received on the African continent uh, would be a little bit different because, um, you know, there's a sense that uh, government uh, is ultimately 
uh, responsible, you know, for you know things like service delivery and uh, you know you know there's that there's that narrative uh, that these are areas that uh, the government is supposed to be taking that is supposed to be uh, involved involved with. So I think there's a very there's a very different perception in terms of uh, the role of government uh, in uh, in development and in things like media um, and, uh, and, uh, and 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 to some extent soft power as well. So I think there's a different there's a different interpretation. Uh, that somehow that somehow makes these initiatives, um, uh, you know, uh, there'll be some questions in terms of in terms in terms of the role of the state, but African uh, societies have a different conception of uh, of the of the role and responsibility of the state. Uh, that kind of uh, that kind of uh, brings us to a very very interesting discussion uh, of how to uh, you know disconnect uh, state driven soft power initiatives and soft power initiatives that don't necessarily uh, come from come from uh, come from the state. So so yes, I would agree with you that uh, the you know there are issues of perception there. We have focused most of our discussion today, obviously, on what the Chinese are doing in Africa, but it's worthwhile to kind of put it in a broader context. And one of the things that I've, I've struggled with is thinking about, say, the United States, who a lot of people assume that the U.S. government is good at soft power. So the idea is that in many ways, American culture is seen as the benchmark. First of all, the idea was coined by a Harvard professor. It's, this is a concept that in the modern era has been framed by U.S. think tanks and policymakers. It's not been framed in the global south. So it's not surprising in some ways that Americans will naturally think that they are better or at least competent in soft power. And I'm wondering what you think, because when we look at American culture, it remains very strong still. People love Beyonce all over the world. That being said, here in Southeast Asia, I'll say uh, American culture isn't as prominent, say, as Japanese and Korean culture. Nonetheless, that's a form of, of soft power as well, K-Wave and K-pop and things like that. But my question is, in terms of actual communicating government initiatives, the United States, for example, doesn't seem to be that compelling and doesn't seem to be that competent. And, and I'd be interested for you as somebody who sits in Washington and what your vantage point is in terms of comparing how the Chinese are in a place like Africa to how the U.S. is in Africa. Yeah, no, no, I think, no, that's a, that's a, that's a very, uh, a very interesting question. Um, no, I mean, when you look at, when you look at things from the American uh, point of view, I would say that it, it's less, it's less an issue of uh, government, uh, sort of government sanctioned uh, initiatives. I mean, of course, you have, um, you know, you have, you know, during during the during the Cold War, um, you know, you had, you know, Voice of America and 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 all, and all these other entities. But I mean, if you look at, you know, where 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 do the next, uh, you know, emerging African technologically savvy students where where do they think, uh, you know, you know, when they think about uh, uh, career careers, uh, you know, when they think about where they want to be, um, say five, five, ten years from now, the, and and you ask those questions uh, to an average uh, African student, uh, you're going to get a response. You know, there'll be, you know, you know, I want to go to MIT or I want to go to Harvard. Uh, I want to go to, um, uh, you know, to UPenn and, and 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 so on and so forth. You 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 won't hear them say, I want to go to you know Fudan uh, University or you know you 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 know you won't hear that. So. Um, and you know we can look at this in in, in a number of other um, uh, areas as well. So I think um, with American soft power, uh, a lot of it uh, has to do with um, uh, 
uh, how people perceive the United States. You know, you know how people perceive the the you know the democratic the, democ- the you know U.S. democracy, U.S. values, U.S. culture uh, are much more are much more resilient. Uh, I would say around around the world, and precisely because uh, you know essentially what Joseph Nye is saying, uh, the extent to which outsiders uh, or foreigners uh, or you know out- outside audiences view your um your you know your cultural at your cultural attributes uh your values and so on and so forth so so that's what i would say but uh looking at it from the from the chinese side you do have a couple of uh, scholars uh like wang jisa for instance who says that um that ultimately soft power uh you know is not sanctioned uh does not um cannot be sustained over a long period if it is sanctioned uh, by the state, uh, it 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 essentially has to be a bottom up. Um, uh, it has to be a bottom up uh, process, and so there's a lot. Uh, you know, there's a huge dimension of soft power that has to do with uh, what is happening inside China itself. So you have uh, scholars like him uh, who have said that uh, there's a domestic element to it as well. But if that's the case, then, but I'm sorry to interrupt you. And and Kobus brought this point up in our discussion about Guangzhou, where. He, he pointed out then, and Cobus, forgive me for, for paraphrasing here and stop me if I'm wrong here, but on any given Tuesday, the level of discrimination against African migrants in the suburbs of Paris far exceeds whatever happened in Guangzhou. And yet the outrage over Guangzhou was, you know, orders of magnitude larger than what we've seen about anti-black, anti-African migrant discrimination in France. And yet here we are in the United States in 2020, where the White House the government of the United States is actively trying to disenfranchise black voters. I mean, there's n- and, and the president is not even subtle about it. And yet, I mean, he's, he's even admitting what he's trying to do. And they're rolling, they're taking mailboxes out of black communities in order to make it more difficult for them to vote. We obviously have a police violence issue. There's so much in the U.S. culture that one would think would undermine what you're talking about in terms of the perceptions of the United States among Africans, and yet it remains durable. That doesn't make sense. Would you like me to respond to that, or, or, or does Corbus want to go ahead? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a question mixed with a statement mixed with a riddle that I'm I'm confused about why you say that American soft power remains popular in a place like Africa, given what African migrants have had to do the shutting off. I mean, we have asshole countries. I mean, we don't have to go through the litany of what the Trump administration and even to some extent the Obama administration has done. But why is American soft power compelling to this day uh, when, in fact, it's undergone so many challenges? Right. I think I think it's you, you know you know there's that if you look at the Afrobarometer reports, for instance, uh, you know they do they do surveys and in fact they have they have one that's coming out shortly. Uh, where they try to, uh, you know, assess, uh, you know, uh, I think it, I think they do it. They do it across thirty-six African countries in terms of, uh, uh, w- you know, development models and uh, uh, governance models that African countries, uh, that African, that respondents in these different African countries find attractive. And uh, you see that um, uh, the United States and China are really neck and neck uh, in those in those assessments, and in some regions. Uh, the United States is seen as is seen as uh, offering as uh, you know as offering better uh, you, you know better 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 models uh, than uh, than China than in others. So um, 
you know, just judging by the um, sort of like uh, some of those, uh, some of that qualitative work, you do see that um, that there is that there is uh, uh, you know you know a level a level of resilience in terms of values, in terms of values, in terms of values that are associated uh, with the American experiment uh, and with essentially what America stands for. And uh, I'm talking here. Um, uh, I'm talking about the um, you know the broader the broader the broader dynamic. And the broader, the broader, the broader, the broader perspective uh, of what of what the United States and what America and Americans are seen uh, to be representing uh, on the continent and in and in other parts of the world, in terms of the um, uh, the backlash over over what happened in Guangzhou uh, earlier uh, this year, I think the um, the outpouring of uh, of uh, of uh, um, of, uh, of, uh, of anger, the outpouring of emotion over what happened to African communities there. I think the reason why it was so pronounced is precisely because it, um, it challenged or it questioned this narrative that has been taken for granted um, and that has really become embedded in the African uh, discourse about what China represents on the African continent, a partner um, a, 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 a power that understands uh, where Africa is coming from, uh, issues of uh, poverty, lifting people out of poverty. Over 850 million have been lifted in a space of uh, 40, 50 years. Um, and sort of the narrative that uh, China tries to promote uh, within, within the FOCAC meetings and also its strategic communications of the continent, I think that was really challenged. It was challenged, and so the reason, uh, the you know, the reason that the that the uh, response was so sharp uh, by African uh, African students and African communities, and even the African Union and other and governments on the continent and uh, researchers on the continent, is precisely because uh, it challenged uh, this uh, this uh, this uh, this notion uh, that um, you know that China will uh, necessarily, uh, given its history. Uh, behave and conduct itself differently uh, from uh, from uh, uh, the quote unquote uh, former colonial uh, former colonial powers. So so that that's that that's what I took away from the from the Guangzhou uh, incident. You know, we we've seen over the last year or so, um, you know, officials on both the American and the Chinese sides being more comfortable to to to, to talk about uh, you know current U.S. China tensions in terms of new a new Cold War. That you know this that that concept has really has really become more prominent. Um, a, you know, kind of what 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 do you make of that? Of you know of, of the, uh, that way of talking becoming so prominent at the moment? And B, um, you know, how how do you see this kind of thing playing out over the next you know kind of near future in a place like Africa? Um, and you know, and and are we seeing a a situation where? Um, there is more of a struggle for for kind of you know kind of public opinion in in Africa or um, you know yeah you know kind of how how, how do you th- see that kind of open rivalry actually playing out in, in in this kind of third space like in Africa? Yes, no, I I mean just in terms of uh, of uh, colleagues that I that I talk to on the continent and sort of uh, debates that I you know that I you know that I you know that I look at uh, on on this on this podcast and uh, within the broader China Africa community. Um, there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of pushback. Um, and I think the reason why you have that pushback is because uh, you have a generation of, uh, of, um, of African uh, professionals who uh, do not believe uh, that the continent uh, should be a battleground, uh, a battleground for um, 
you know, strategic uh, competition between major powers. And the reason why this is so uh, strongly, um, you know, why, why uh, African communities um, feel so strongly about this is because it, it immediately removes um, uh, uh, sort of the element of African agency, the African agency, um, both in terms of um, where should the continent be and what should the continent, what are the continent's interests and how should those interests be, uh, be advanced. Uh, the problem with the strategic competition thesis, uh, and I think it, 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 it conjures images of the Cold War, is that the African story is completely, is completely um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, ignored or, or, or overlooked. So I think there's a lot of pushback, and I think um, there are quite a number of, uh, of uh, uh, you, you know, the, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of research that's coming out, and a lot of statements uh, that you know, you know that are being made uh, outside outside. I'm talking outside of government circles that are really um, uh, challenging this uh, this uh, this uh, this notion, and are really putting putting on the table uh, what um, uh, what what you know what the African development agenda should be. Uh, and what and what and what uh, and what the Africa uh, what African interests uh, uh, should look like uh, going forward. Um, so that's that's the sense that I get, uh, you know, by uh, uh, talking and engaging with uh, with different uh, uh, colleagues uh, within 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 the within the Africa China space. Let's close our discussion looking forward, say the next six to twelve months, really the short term, because given what we're in right now in terms of the horrific year that 2020 is and what 2021 looks like it's going to be as well, it's hard to see beyond, you know, that much beyond. It's like we're in the fog right now, so we have our fog lights on. Help us just get through the fog here. Um, it doesn't look like the U.S.-China conflict is going to settle down anytime soon. It doesn't look like uh, the delivery of any vaccine, if one comes, will come to Africa first, despite what the Chinese say. That's just speculation on my part. So it looks like the end of the year is going to be very, very difficult. And the narratives between the Chinese and the Americans is going to become more acidic. Africans will have to assert themselves in that space to articulate what it is that they want so they can assert agency, as you mentioned. What should we expect in this soft power space about the articulation of these various competing messages in the next six to 12 months? Right. Um, no, I think uh, you're, you're definitely. We're definitely going to see uh, an uh, an intensification of uh, Chinese soft power initiatives on the continent, and sort of going up to uh, the FOCAC the FOCAC meeting in Senegal. Uh, we're going to see a lot more of that uh, because the um, you know at at a larger strategic level, uh, the competition and the rivalry is is intensifying. So you're going to see. Um, uh, uh, you know, Beijing really doubling down on its soft power initiatives, and it would be interesting to see uh, what new initiatives um, you know will be announced at, uh, at 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 the next at the next FOCAC round. Uh, secondly, I think uh, there's going to be much more uh, debate on the African continent on uh, on uh, on China-Africa relations, what the relationship should look like, and how African countries should engage, uh, not just China but other but other um, but other but other uh, developing develop you know development uh, partners. I think um, one of the things that I'm really uh, encouraged, uh, I think you know, which is really really encouraging 
is um you know the 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 china africa you know independent independent community of researchers and scholars are really asserting themselves and really inserting themselves in these discussions in the policy discussions so for instance if you look at the uh, issues around accountability uh, if you look at the issues around um around around transparency um uh, you know you, you know around you know the um uh, uh uh kenya is a very is a very good example where um the discourse on on, uh, on 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 accountability of chinese projects uh, around you know you look at what happened with the, with the sgr a lot a lot of that is coming from from these communities of interest uh you look at what's happening in ghana you look at what is happening even in south africa i think there is a growth of uh, of uh, of of commentary uh, that I think is very noteworthy in terms of in terms of uh, trying to assert that African agency. So this is where this is where I think things are heading. I think we're going to see more intensified engagement, but at the same time, you're going to see uh, a lot more um, uh, uh, African African uh, uh, actors uh, inserting themselves in that debate and trying to assert African agency, which I think is a good thing. Paul Antulia is a research associate at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, D.C. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Your insights uh, were just really so helpful to let me understand what's going on, and I'm sure the audience enjoyed it as well. Uh, Tell us, you are on Twitter, and what is your handle so people can follow what you're reading and writing these days? Uh, my handle is uh, P. Nantulia. Very, very simple. Great. Well, I'll put a link to to Paul's uh, Twitter link uh, in the show notes down below, also to some of his recent writings. Uh, Paul is very, very active on the China-Africa research circuit. You'll see his writings out there. He's very, very vocal in the community uh, and just always a, va- a fascinating voice. And we're just honored to have you on the show today. So thank you so much for taking the time and getting up so early to join us. We really appreciate it. No, thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, it was excellent uh, to connect. And uh, Kobus, uh, really, really honored to share this space with you. Kobus, when I give talks on China-Africa relations, I often say that I'm going to leave people more confused than when they started, because this is a story that doesn't kind of have a neat, clean narrative. And I have to admit that I'm more confused now than when we started a discussion with Paul. And that's actually a good thing, because it means that there's a lot more nuance and texture coming into the conversation I'm generally very skeptical of Chinese soft power initiatives in Africa because I think they're not very good. But at the same time, I'm also now starting to realize that I may not be looking at it the right way, that they are, again, using tools that I don't fully understand. I may be just looking at the superficial part, which is Twitter, CGTN, embassy messaging, the traditional tools of soft power. But what they're doing behind the scenes the things that Lena Ben Abdallah from Wake Forest University detailed in her book about the relationships, the knowledge sharing, that's what Paul brought up. That may be where the secret sauce of Chinese soft power is. And the fact that civil society doesn't like the Chinese, the fact that the Premium Times newspaper in Nigeria or Daily Maverick or Daily Nation in, in Kenya, you know, writes these editorials that are blasting the Chinese, maybe the Chinese don't care about that. Maybe that's just not important. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it probably is at some level, but the priority for them is on that governing elite and the political side. And maybe the civil society side is something that they recognize that no government today is good at soft power on the civil society side. I don't think there's a single government out there that can manage Facebook messaging in a country like Nigeria. 
and trying to get public opinion to switch because it's too large, too expensive, too complicated, and they don't have the expertise to manage those types of messages in this very fractured media landscape. Maybe the Chinese get that and they're just concentrating on those governing elites, which they seem to be doing pretty well, as Paul pointed out. What do you think? There's, yeah, it's, it's a bunch of different things. Um, but I guess, the, you know, one, one thing is one should make a distinction between soft power as an ongoing you know, entity, and the different kind of public diplomacy tools that that are that are used to try and build it. Um, you know, so so CGTN or Twitter or all of these different things are, are different um, public diplomacy tools, um, and the soft power is is, is frequently. This is one what makes it such a complicated concept because it is so nebulous and it, it you know it, it accumulates over a long time. So you know so so one one of the questions I think to ask about say U.S. soft power in Africa is to which extent we're seeing current U.S. soft power and to which extent we're seeing the accumulation of many decades of U.S. cultural power. Um, you know so so that that's and the U.S. ideal exactly that, that U.S. you know not necessarily grounded in the contemporary reality yeah. but the ideal of what the United States stands for or used to stand for. I think also you know another thing that 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 I think is is interesting to think about is in lots of cases I think. The U.S. is a really important example of this, um, in the sense that the U.S. the U.S. is part part of the U.S.'s power um, in a place like Africa is is that it it it, it has a kind of a weight and a history that it kind of creates its own reality, you know. So in the sense that you mentioned all of all of these issues around race in the U.S. and the way that it plays out um, in Africa, but we should also I think keep in mind that. All uh, so many of the tools of anti-racist activism, so many of so so many of the the kind of phrases, the kinds of language that's used, um, you know, Black Lives Matter being the most prominent example, also come from the U.S. You know, so so the U.S. both is you know kind of has this race problem, but then its solutions to its race problem or its ways of of kind of of being active against this kind of oppression is also a, a form a, a form of American export. Um, you know, so so that it, it has the U.S. is this, this kind of size where it it you know it, it encompasses both of those things at the same time and even more um you know so so it kind of creates its own reality and i think china has not grown to that level not not in africa anyway no i mean there's no kamala harris in china there's no barack obama in china and there never will be and and the idea that a someone from a minority population can rise to become uh, the vice president or the president or even the head of a corporation whatever is a promise and a dream that the United States delivers on enough to make it a reality, whereas China simply doesn't offer that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think the one, the one thing I agree with Paul. The one thing that that we should keep, really keep an eye on, is the the development of of the development discourse. You know, of because that really is something that that. Um, you know, I think that really is lies at the heart, not only of the China-Africa relationship, but also why the China-Africa relationship is important for the West, because you know the you know China you know brings the story of we we were very poor and we we lifted all these people out of poverty and that that is a valuable story. But in the in in the the kind of triangular context, the the story has an, another kind of important kind of you know side side kind of aspect to it which is not only that you know you are currently poor and you could be as rich as we are but you are currently poor because of the west 
You know, the West was directly the reason for your current poverty. Um, and that obviously is a, is a weak spot in, in, China, in, in Africa-West relations, which is never going to go away because it's, it's fundamental to, to what, the, what the relationship is. Um, you know, and I think there, there is really something to, to look at in, in relation to China and Africa. But isn't that exactly what U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is saying about the debt trap, that you are going to be crushed by Chinese loans, so you are going to be poor and poorer for dealing with the Chinese? So in some ways, both are saying that about the other. Yeah, no, they, they are, and you know, kind of, an, and but but the one the, the the story is is lopsided in the sense that, um, you know, no matter what what kind of bad things you you say about the Chinese, the one thing China didn't do is colonize Africa for five hundred years. You know, um, that that history sits there. No, that history is not going uh, going away, no matter what you say about China. And sure, China might be bad in the future, but the future is undecided. The past is decided. Um, you know, so, so I think that that's where the, the difference lies. And so much of our discussion today focused on state soft power. And we, we alluded to it a little bit with our discussion on start times. But I think we're understating the importance of the technology soft power. So brands like Huawei, Boomplay, Start Times, uh, Transin, Techno, all of these Chinese tech brands, I think, are incredibly important. Now TikTok's starting to come uh, to the continent. There's so many different tech brands that young people are speaking to. And then we didn't mention Jack Ma and, and what he's doing in terms of speaking about entrepreneurialism and the competition that he's got and the netpreneurs concept. So this private sector soft power is rising very, very quickly. And in so many ways, it's speaking to African youth who do not want to hear about aid. They don't want to hear about charity. They don't want to hear about safaris or starving babies or anything of the popular narratives in the U.S. and Europe. Instead, Jack Ma is coming in and saying, we want to talk about startups and technology and entrepreneurialism and building your own business and charting your own course. That's a very empowering message. So it's not a state message, but nonetheless, it's a Chinese message. And I think that Chinese entrepreneurialism that is innate in the culture is something that is going to be a very powerful force in the future. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting, um, you know, because entrepreneurialism is is is, is incredibly popular in Africa. It's, it has a very very um, good good image, you know, which, which seems like a kind of redundant thing to say. But I, I was I was at a um, a few years ago. I was on a on a panel um, judging. Um, or, you know, kind of helping to advise on, on which African students, which South African students should get uh, Japanese government scholarships to study in Japan. Um, and all of these kids came in and said, I want to I wanna study engineering, I want to study engineering at a Japanese university and then come back and start a business. And that is, you know, that, that is a, a, a platinum-grade South African story of, of aspiration and success. But it was interesting that the Japanese government officials were very, they didn't like that. You know, kind of they wanted someone who could come and come back and strengthen the government or strengthen the system, not want to, not being in it for, quote, private gain. You know, kind of, and, and that that was a very interesting kind of, kind of, you know, it was revealing for me about about how Africa sees entrepreneurialism. It's incredibly bullish on entrepreneurialism. And so I think in that sense, there's a real overlap there between Africa and China. We are hashing out these issues every single day in our newsletter and on our website. We'd love for you to become a member of the China Africa Project. We start subscriptions at $7 a month for students, $15 a month for everybody else. Uh, it's a great bargain. You get a daily email newsletter from Cobus and I with all of this information. I mean, it is packed full of analysis and news, and there's really no one else out there that is doing this kind of daily intelligence brief on all that's going on in economics, 
politics, soft power, culture, uh, technology, all of those different things. And so also you get access to our expert network with people like Paul, who's in who's in our network. Uh, he's a member there. And then, of course, all the archives of 10 years of podcasts and all the writing that we're doing. So go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Uh, if you use the promo code podcast, we'll take $50 off the price on an annual subscription. So uh, that's a great deal. By the way, we're going to be wrapping that up very soon. Uh, so if you want to take advantage of that offer, it is August, uh, in late August that we're doing that. Come September, we're going to be stopping that promotion. So take advantage of that now if you can. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. If you ever want to reach Kobus or I, super easy to find us. Uh, Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com is my email address. Kobus is at Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. That's C-O-B-U-S at ChinaAfricaProject.com. Go ahead and send us an email. We write back pretty quickly usually, and sometimes you get a really long message from me because I love talking about China Africa news and things like that and interacting with listeners. So please do reach out and say hello. So that'll do it. We'll be back again next week with another show. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>